You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. Hey, Don, I'm saying that and it's February. What's wrong? It's wonderful. It's beautiful weather out there. It's clear skies, sunny as can be, going up to a high today. As we record the show on February 10th, the show will broadcast on February 11th. The high today is 68 degrees and sunny in February. A little bit above average for this time of year, like actually several degrees above average for this time of year. Uh, Increasing clouds tonight. uh, Low will be 44 degrees as the show airs on Thursday, the 11th of February, 2021. There's a chance of showers. There's a storm coming in and there's a pretty good chance of showers overnight and then continued chance of showers into early Friday morning. So the low is only going to be 44 degrees. High Friday, cooling off, back down to more typical temperatures for the Sacramento Valley at this time of year with a high of 60 degrees on Friday, mostly sunny, mostly cloudy Friday night, 45 degrees. Chance of showers on Saturday, cooling off to about 57 degrees. Slight chance of showers Saturday night, 41 degrees. Sunday getting sunny again. And here's the pattern. Monday, which is actually a holiday, a chance of rain, mostly cloudy with a high near 58. Monday night, slight chance of rain and so on. A series of small storms, some chance of showers all around the valley, more likely up in the foothills and so on. But getting back into a a sort of a mild rainy pattern, shall we say. I won't call this a a major event. Um, The extended forecast is telling us Widespread wet weather is forecast to return Thursday into the weekend, but it's forecast to slowly spread north to south, becoming widespread by Thursday night. The heaviest rainfall is expected Thursday evening, showers by early morning hours on Friday, expected to completely move out of the area by Friday morning, mostly dry but dreary day. (laughs) We don't usually get these adjectives from the National Weather Service. A mostly dry but dreary day. Is forecast Friday. Hey, some people like that kind of weather. Before the next weather system is expected to move in early Saturday, differences remain in the models as to the timing and strength of this system. And uh, Sunday through Wednesday, little chance in the pattern early next week with another weak to moderate system forecast to break through the ridge and so on. So showers, not downpours, but maybe local downpours. Who knows? They're still kind of getting getting a handle on those models. Um, The question I keep getting is how much, how are we with respect to rainfall? Oh, we're terrible. Um, If you look at the percent of average for our side of the valley, let's take Vacaville, for example, 35% of average. Uh, Sacramento, anywhere from 30 to 55%, depending on where they are with respect to being upslope or down in the valley. Mostly 30s to 40% range in the valley. Good news is most of our water comes from the mountains. Bad news is most of the mountains are only at 50 to 60% of average. So definitely a low rainfall year, although that last storm, that big storm, gave a lot of snow of the higher elevations, which probably has the water managers breathing a little easier. Uh, fruit uh, trees, and how are we doing with chilling hours? Well, Davis has had 
before you get on and off of that stuff, you keep saying the snowfall. And for those listeners who are not Californians, can you please describe why snowfall makes a difference when it doesn't snow here in Davis? We, we have seen snow here two or three times in my lifetime, and it's not a significant part of our water resources. But for the state, the snowpack in the Sierra is the major source of water during the summertime as it melts, comes down, gets stored in the very large reservoirs, Shasta, Trinity, and Oroville being the biggest of all, and then a fair number of smaller reservoirs on the east side of the state. And that is metered out through those reservoirs down into the valley along the Sacramento River and further down into the San Joaquin Valley to the farmers down there who always wait to find out how much they're going to get each year. And a fair chunk of it goes on down to Southern California water districts as well. So the Water storage in California is entirely, well not entirely, but the most important part of it is the snowpack in the Sierra. So they go up there once a month and they measure how deep the snow is. That's sort of a, a media event when they do that. They, there's a couple places they can go where reporters can trail along and they can show exactly where it is and compare it to previous years. Let me tell you, on January 1, it was dismal. Uh, this last storm brought it up, that big storm brought it up quite a bit. Um, not where it needs to be in terms of state water supplies, but the water managers do a big juggling act of how much they allow to stay in the reservoirs and how much is allowed to go downstream and so forth. So, I, you know, it's a second dry year now, and we're way below average, but that snow melt will make up for it to some degree. On this side of the valley, where we are, it's not a factor. Lake Berryessa, which is a major reservoir to the west of us, is a very large reservoir. You look on a map, if you're from out of this area, look on a map and find Lake Berryessa. It's an extremely large man-made reservoir that was created by building a dam on Puda Creek, which is the outflow that goes in through Davis and uh, down to the Delta. And it holds about a six-year supply of water. It happens to be on a very high rainfall watershed. No snow to speak of. I mean, we get snow up there occasionally. There's even Snow Mountain over in Mendocino County. So snow does happen on the coast range, but it's not a significant factor in water storage. The Lake Berryessa happens to be when we get an inch of rain, we're in Davis, Vacaville, which is 20 miles to the west, gets an inch and a half of rain. Up by Lake Berryessa, they get three inches of rain. I mean, the storms hit that coast range, elevate very rapidly. The orographic effect causes significant rainfall on the Lake Berryessa watershed. So the farmers in our area, Solano and Yolo counties, uh, in Solano County, they rely very heavily on Lake Berryessa, and that cushions them through drought years very effectively because it's a big lake with a very active wet watershed. Uh, Yolo County water for the farmers, other than what comes out of wells in the ground, comes from Indian Valley Reservoir, which is fed from uh, Clear Lake, which is to the north and also gets a lot of rainfall. So we tend to be a little buffered, listeners in Davis, Woodland, Dixon, Winters, from the effects of drought because of this particular area where we are with respect to the rainfall pattern on the coast range. That was a long answer to a short question. But so, it was good because okay. we so so frequently mention it, and I don't think we've ever had quite that detailed a discussion. So yeah, thank the, you, Don. 
the snowpack is very, very important to statewide. Uh, chilling hours, we talk about them all the time. Davis right now is up to about 700 chilling hours. The, the year sort of ends and counting that at the end of February, so we'll probably hit 750 to 800. By comparison, Dixon, which is a little uh, further out in the country and doesn't have the urban heat island effect and is more open to the, to the sky, 822 of they've measured in Dixon. So we've had the chilling hours that the stone fruits need, which is a good thing because some of them are starting to bloom. <laughs> We're already seeing flowers in this area on the flowering plums. That's the ornamental tree that's just about to pop around the area. The almonds have started to bloom. The very first blossoms in my orchard popped out two days ago. And that's the beginning of a bloom that goes on three to four weeks and is heavy in the month of February and into the first week or two of March. It's always a surprise to people in other areas that we have all these beautiful trees blooming at this time of year where, you know, to them is winter. That's the start of our spring really is when the almonds come into bloom here. People love to drive up to this area, drive around and see all the almond blossoms on the tens of thousands of acres of almond trees that grow in this area. And there are trees that are come out even before that. And those are the seed grown almonds that are sprinkled about the county roads. Right. Where some, some almond managed to land and actually sprouted. And they seem to be earlier than the than the commercial varieties. I've noticed that on my property, the seedlings that come up in the you know along the freeway and down on the edge of the property are the very first to bloom. And just for the record, most of those you can you can harvest the almonds from them, but there's a high likelihood they'll be bitter. Because bitterness in almonds is a, a characteristic that has been bred out of them. We always do a public service announcement, and we got a wonderful thing here from the Bohart Museum of Entomology. I think I sent that one on to you. Um, they have a, it's going to be really easy when you get back on campus and can go over to Bohart Museum of Entomology. We love to mention their resources, which are great. It's uh, online, but they now have a big old statue out front. Guess what it's of? Um, um, a water an bear. insect. A water bear. A water bear? What the heck's a water bear? A water bear. Let me pull up the official notification that we got about this. Um, the, uh, uh, I mean, we're going we're gonna to edit part of this out while I find this uh, because it was. Yeah, it's not downloading for me, so I can't see what it is. Here we go. All right, let's five, four, three. So there's a newly installed sculpture in front of Bohart Museum, a cuddly campus landmark, which will make it easy for visitors to find the wonderful entomology museum there on campus. It's a tardigrade. A yes, what? a tardigrade, also called water bear, because they're really cute when you look at them under a microscope. It's a newly installed water bear sculpture in front of the Bohart Museum of Entomology. Promises not only to be a cuddly bear? campus bear, it looks sort of like a bear, I guess. Looks to me more like a... Uh, uh, a louse. But got, I see that picture now, Don. It has six legs. That's not a eight. bear. It has, it has eight legs. They're really interesting animals, uh, interesting critters. So this thing weighs 2,112 pounds, measures six feet long, nearly three feet high. Fortunately, the water bear is not that big. The water bear ranges from 0.3 to 0.5 millimeters in length. Something that you can find if you're doing biological classes, biology classes with kids on mosses and things like that, because they mostly just feed on, on mosses and other some other bacteria in some cases. Um, so they're not harmful. They're not a human parasite. They're not anything like this. And apparently kids will recognize this right away because it was uh, one of the characters in, which movie is it? Uh... Ant-Man, 
Ant-Man and the Wasp, Star Trek, and Family Guy. Tardigrades have been featured in each of those shows and movies. So the Bohart Museum is located in room 1124. Just look for the tardigrade of the Academic <laughs> Surge Building. And they house a global collection of nearly 8 million insect specimens. Also houses a live petting zoo of Madagascar hissing cockroach. Madagascar hissing cockroaches, stick insects and tarantulas, as well as a year-round, now online, gift shop. The Insect Museum is currently closed to the public, but the tardigrade sculpture is out there where you can see it. And uh, once they start up with their activities again, that'll oh. just be how we tell you to find the Bohart Museum of Entomology. Um, and, the, and it is directly across the road. Their, their parking lot is directly across the road from the headquarters from the Arboretum. Yep. And outside that headquarters is a bunch of, there's a kiosk with a bunch of information there. So even though the Bohart Museum is itself closed, the Arboretum is open and you can find info there about that. Worth noting, the Bohart Museum houses one of the world's largest tardigrade collections. So... <laughs> Elementary school listeners out there who are maybe doing some of your schooling at home, go online, look up Tardigrade, T-A-R-D-I-G-R-A-D-E. Learn all you can about tardigrades and go to Bohart Museum of Entomology website, bohart.ucdavis.edu. Okay. And uh, lots of great programming here at uh, KDRT. Um, let's mention one of the great public affairs shows that airs periodically on KDRT. Lois, what's one of your favorites? Oh, Davisville. Davisville, uh, there you go. Davisville, and he did a really wonderful program about dealing with the, the stress of these times. It's an excellent, excellent show. It's actually featured on the front page of the KDRT website. So mm -hmm. the easiest way to find it is go to kdrt.org, scroll down until you see two arrows facing each other, and that's the show. Bill Buchanan has been doing Davisville for a long time. He presents stories from in and around town that involve the Davis community. The show is a three-time winner of Journalistic Excellence Awards from the San Francisco Press Club. Current airtime for Davisville is, let's see, 5.30 p.m. on Mondays, and it replays several times during the week. So just for the schedule for that and all the other great programming at KDRT, just go to kdrt.org and click on the schedule guide. February 16th my last birding talk of the season. So if you're interested, look for the Senior Scene, that's the Senior Center's newsletter, and get that Zoom meeting, or look on our website, davidsgardenshow.com, Don has the link up there. So that's a Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock for the seniors, birding in Davis. Senior, seniors only? No, but it's, uh, it's, it's for the <laughs> Senior Center, so I haven't been publicizing it through the Arboretum or through other other Audubon Society or anything. But young so everyone people. is welcome. Young people yeah, are welcome. Carol, young people, old people, everybody. Okay. And we don't have an upper limit on how many people can come. So, hey, you're welcome to the Zoom meeting. There you go. Hey, it's spring, right? Okay, it's February. No, it's winter. It's February 10th, but honestly. It's winter. Honestly, <laughs> to explain, since we have listeners all over the world, actually, but particularly a lot of different parts of the United States, from a nursery owner's standpoint, spring begins around Valentine's Day here. That is the beginning of our spring season. That's when we start bringing in flowers, not just because of Valentine's Day, but because the weather, 68 degrees on you know, the second week of February, brings people out looking for flowers in that spring mode. And I've come to realize that in general, we're about six weeks ahead of 
many other parts of the country. So when we say our daffodils are blooming, which they're beginning to do here, you can use that as a kind of a timestamp for when the things we're saying might be relevant to where you're listening. And uh, we are now at the beginning of a very active gardening period from about February 14th to the end of April, we have what we call spring. And a lot of things bloom now. The annuals that you planted in the fall and the winter are gonna really come into glorious bloom now with mild weather. What we have from this point forward, the likelihood of frost diminishes very rapidly here after Valentine's Day. I'm not saying it's never happened, but I could count on one hand the number of frosts that I've recorded after the middle of February. Uh, the latest that I've ever noted was the, you know, the first week of April, which was a real fluke phenomenon that took everybody by surprise. But we can pretty well count on frost-free conditions going Going forward and the days are in the 70s to the low 80s and the nights are in the upper 30s to 40s so it's very mild weather and in general it's also a great time to garden because there's plenty of soil moisture <laughs> most time most years because we've usually we're coming off of our high rainfall season we're still getting rain typically in February March uh, even into April generally only about an inch or so in April but enough rain that even if you don't happen to water something one day, the soil moisture is still adequate. So we have a lot of things that bloom in that very mild period. And it's a wonderful time to be out in the garden. What kind of ends this period with that I'm calling spring for us is 90 degree temperature. And that usually hits almost without exception. I went back through several years of weather records. We usually hit 90 degrees by about the third week of April once, not repeatedly, not consistently, but we have a hot day by our standards, you know, by that time of year standards, in about the third week of April, which marks the beginning of when we plant tomatoes and start thinking about putting peppers in the ground. The soil temperature is increasing enough for subtropicals like lantanas and verbena and things like that to really be happy. So that's the beginning of kind of our summer thinking, our summer planning and planting. But that two month period, second week of February to about the third week of April is a great time for lots of color in the garden. It's a very comfortable time to be out there. So you can still go down to your garden center, for example, or if you've done them from seed, you can start putting them out in the ground and plant a lot of annual flowers that'll just give you lots and lots of bloom until that hot weather hits. Talking to a lot of people coming in right now looking for things like seeds of sweet peas. Well, seeds of sweet peas, you know, you're planting them now and that 90 degree weather is going to truncate the bloom, pretty much end it. So you're, it's a race against time for something like that. But if you planted them in September, October, they'd be running up the trellis now, getting ready to initiate buds and blooms and give you lots of bloom February, March into early April. And even into April or May some years, you know, that's, that's the variable part is the end of that, this period when we start hitting the higher temperatures more consistently. Uh, a lot of the things that we sell as annuals, cool season annuals, I realize you can grow in other areas right on into the summer. But for us, pansies, violas, calendulas, sweet peas, uh, snapdragons to some extent, they're a little more heat tolerant. Typically their peak bloom is April, March, April. By the time we get into May, it's getting hot for them and they're finishing up and you just decide to pull them because their appearance is not great. So we're entering a period now that you all might be looking at four or five weeks from now. But garden centers will start bringing these things in for you to plant already in bloom or as young plants that you can put out that will be blooming in just a few weeks. So question on that, you said if there was one day and then the 190 day, then that that's a problem. It is, it, it's temperature related. Does it, is there any microclimate thing where you could 
make it so that it would last longer and wouldn't die at 90 degrees, even if the air is 90 degrees? Well, first of all, that's just a marker. I mean, when I, I use some of these things that say to me, okay, we've shifted and 90 degrees isn't the end of it. I've had pansies, violas, snapdragons blooming on in through the month of May in milder springs. But, you know, consistently people who've lived here for a while know that that first 90 degree day, there's going to be more. <laughs> They're going to be coming on pretty quick. Uh, there's a lot of places where 90 degrees would be an extreme weather event, whereas for us, you know, that's just normal May weather. It's just at the high end of normal. If there's increasing shade on some of these things, I mean, there are plants that I've, I've always liked to plant where a deciduous tree nearby will cast a little shade as the afternoon gets hotter. Uh, pansies and violas are great examples. Johnny Jump Up. The little, the little flowered close relative of pansies. Um, you can stretch your season with some of them. Now, some of them will need full sun. I mean, snapdragons just don't do well if they're not in full sun. They don't bloom very well. So increasing shade is not particularly an answer there. So you get a little, um, you can use some judgment on this. You can kind of experiment. Uh, we find that some things will continue, like paludosum daisies, those little white daisies, will continue further on into the summer if they get some afternoon shade, but they should at least have morning sun in order to bloom well. You should also use that threshold when you hit that upper 80s to 90 as a sign that it's time to start thinking about the next wave of annuals. Uh, if you're the person who has a bed of flowering annuals and you want it to look good all the time, Late April to early May is the time to start putting in your zinnias, which will look fantastic in July. And we'll talk more about that next cycle of bloom as we get closer to that. But we have uh, uh, heat lovers. We, well, there's things that love our dry summer heat here. People sometimes find this hard to imagine when they move here. It's so hot. How can anything like to be out there? Well, zinnias love it. As <laughs> one example, sunflowers thrive on that. Perennials like lavender, you know, Mediterranean plants certainly thrive on it. But you really don't want to put zinnias in until it's the soil is warm enough for tomatoes and peppers so you don't even really start planting those until may which is your next big beginning of your next bloom cycle planting cycle and so forth so we don't go by the calendar because the calendar would tell us spring begins on march 21st nope <laughs> nursery, nursery business spring begins on february 14th and uh, as far as we're concerned if we're lucky it'll go all the way through memorial day um, but that 90 degree temperature is kind of a, a threshold for a lot of people so the other thing that is um, growing wildly, blooming, oh my goodness, it's 68 degrees. That's the weeds, Don. Yes, Don't they're doing great. Don't we problems here? What <laughs> can we do about weeds now? Well, what we should have done was back uh -huh. in October, November. This is a truism. Someday we're going to do a whole show of just short truisms. Most weeds are easy to control at the four-leaf stage. If they've germinated and the first true leaves, first seedling leaves have come up and then the first true leaves come up, even weeds that are notoriously hard to kill, like nutsedge, if you get it when there's only four leaves there, you can kill it. And it's easy to do with, with most seedlings. You know, that, that horrible plant, the bed straw, that's been driving people crazy. The, uh, uh, it's got a bunch of names. We all like to call it Velcro plant. It breaks off and sticks to your skin or sticks to your, your gloves and you carry it around and then it's over there. And next thing you know, it's all over your property. It's at the stage now of rapid expansion. It has gone from cute little seedlings that would have been very easy. One second with a hoe would have killed them out back in October, November, December, even into late January. It was just down there at ground level with a few leaves. Now it's sending out the strong stems that run across the ground, 
up into shrubs, which makes it harder to control because they break off so easily. Uh, you just have to keep chopping and pulling and chopping and pulling. It's right now that expansion stage. So if you could bury that, chop it, spray it, whatever you're okay with, uh, this is a really good time to do that because it's about four to five weeks away from flowering and going to seed and creating next year's problem. So once people come into me with weeds that are in full bloom or have seed heads on them, I say, well, now we're going to talk about how you're going to deal with this next, next year. year because this is already at the stage now where you're just going to get rid of as many seed heads as you can to try and prevent the problem in the future. And it's literally just manual mechanical removal at that point. There's no spray or anything that's going to magically kill a plant that's gone to seed and simultaneously prevent the seeds from sprouting. Commercial gardeners know that there are pre-emergent products they can put down in flower beds and lawns that will kill seedlings as they germinate. They have those available to them from various ag supply places and strategically timed to late February, uh, September, again in, in June for some weeds. They can prevent a lot of weeds using those materials. Some of those are available for home gardeners, but for the most part, if you know the timing of the germination, most of the things you're seeing now came up with the first rains. Most of the things that you see in your garden in May to June came up when the soil warmed up in March or April and so on. You know that timing, you watch for those seedlings, you learn to recognize them. A little action hoe or hula hoe with just a few minutes can make an amazing amount of difference in terms of how much of a weed problem you deal with a few months later. So, you know, I, I, I think knowing how to use a hoe and the timing of it is probably the most important aspect of weeding and has been for millennia. <laughs> yes, there are products out there that will help and some of them are, are quite low toxicity and some of them are just top kill and others are systemic and others prevent the seedlings as they germinate. I consider those more for maintenance gardeners and commercial landscapers. Home gardeners typically can just mulch areas heavily, smother weeds in the seedling stage, chop them off early and uh, deal with them that way. The first thing though, people often send me pictures of overgrown yards and they say, how do I deal with the weeds? And I say, I need to know what they are. We need to identify them first because then I can tell you this one's coming up from seed. This one, let's say Bermuda grass, is coming up from stems that overwinter and last as perennials. This one, let's say nut sedge, is coming up from little bulblets, really hard to control for that reason. And so knowing what the adaptive strategy of the weed is, what it is that makes it a weed, uh, is a really important part of figuring out how to deal with it. So Don, uh Thank you. I got a hula hole from you, and that yeah. was very nice. Wasn't they fun? And I, I thought I knew how to use it, but <laughs> you know, I don't have any bare dirt in my yard, which is how I always used to use it when I had a rental property, when I was a, a renter. But now I had, well, I had put down landscape fabric with six to eight inches of mulch, which is now reduced down to about four inches of mulch. Mm -hmm. And so I've, uh, and now there's weeds in it. A hula hoe doesn't seem to work very well in mulch. It can. If the mulch is, is fairly dry, you drop it down right next to the crown of the plant, you tug towards yourself. A hula hoe is an interesting hoe. Folks should go online and check it out. That's a brand. So the overall, that product when made by other companies is called an action hoe. It's, it's hollow, shall I say? Uh, rather it's a, it's a, like a circle, like a flattened circle, unlike a typical hoe, which is a blade, but it functions the same. You drop it next to the plant and you pull it to sever the plant at ground level. And if it's a rosette forming plant, you may have to dig down a little bit to get it. But in general, with a young seedling, if you just pull it towards you and your soil is in the right condition and not too coarse, you can generally chop them off pretty readily and get good control that way. You, you learn to let the hoe do the work. You just drop it down and pull, drop and pull, and you can pull a lot of them out 
that way. Some weeds resist, in which case you may have to just go back to them later, hand pull them, do whatever you're willing to do for that. But the hula hoe or a regular hoe is just based on pulling towards you and chopping off at ground level. If you have chunky mulch, it can be a little challenging. Yes, you may have to kind of chop a little more. You may have to put some more energy into it or get a more conventional hoe for that purpose and be careful not to gouge through your landscape fabric. But uh, the other option, once you've got things sort of chopped down, is just bring in some more mulch. I mean, burying weeds does work up to a point. If you put three to four inches of any coarse material on top of them, arborists, wood chips, whatever you got, uh, even just plain old compost by in, in volume. If any leaf pokes through, that plant will think it's in nirvana because it has no competition now. But everything that's buried, if it's buried, can't photosynthesize. If it can't photosynthesize, it can't live. So you can literally bury weeds to death by doing repeated reapplications of mulch on top of them. It takes a lot but it's actually in the long run great for the soil if that can break down and, and enter the soil. So we have lots of uh, things to talk about today. And I think I would like to, if you don't mind, um, go to one that is not on your list. Okay. And that is, uh, now my husband reads the newspaper all the time and he keeps sending articles to us. So this one, it was, it's in the Davis Enterprise. And it's dated, it is dated um, February 5th okay. in the Enterprise. It says, class offered on preserving citrus. Yes. And this is a free Zoom virtual workshop on Saturday, February 13th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. And it will demonstrate ways to preserve various kinds of citrus fruit. You have to register in advance. And it is, uh, it, it sounds really interesting. This is by the UC Master Food Preservers, yes. part of the extension program. And what's the date of that? That is on Saturday, February 13th. Coming up real quick. Yeah. Okay. So you better go online to the davisenterprise.com and find that article. And uh, yeah, so this is citrus season. Lots of citrus coming into the markets. This is when I, although I have ridiculous numbers of citrus here I'm picking clementine mandarins and the satsumas are pretty well done, but they're still still okay. The navel oranges are coming in. But when I'm in a fruit stand, and there's a great one right on Interstate 80 there at Pedrick Road, if they've got something I don't have, I buy it and <laughs> try it. And the most recent one we tried was a mandarin blood orange hybrid. Mandarin blood orange hybrid. And um, this thing is phenomenal. I'm going to have to try and find budwood or plants of this. This is a great time anywhere you are, since, of course, they're distributed all over the country at this time, to try different citrus. And there are lots and lots of different kinds there. Uh, right now, the mandarins are beginning to come in, not just the satsumas, but the... Um, um, uh, the clementines, the ones in the cuties program, which are different types that are like clementines, generally seedless, generally um, very juicy and easy to peel because that's those are really important characteristics of that cuties marketing program. This one is called Ruby Tango. Ruby Tango. I don't think you're going to find it in a lot of stores, but if you do, I would give it a try. It's a If you know what a blood orange is, that's an orange. Uh, they're derived from an Italian variant that occurred many years ago where the flesh is raspberry red and they're very juicy. 
So they have a, and they have a wonderful distinctive flavor, which I've heard described in funny ways. I've seen descriptions where they say, tastes like a raspberry. Well, it doesn't taste like any raspberry I've ever tasted. But when you get that different pigment in there, it does give a distinctive flavor. And blood oranges are, have always been popular with folks from the Mediterranean and uh, uh, other parts of the world where they're more widely used. But they're kind of catching on in California. Well, this one is more like a mandarin that is easy to peel, easy to segment, quite juicy, quite sweet, and has that very distinctive blood orange flavor. So go out and check out if you can find a Ruby Tango Hybrid Mandarin Blood Orange Cross. No, it was not genetically engineered. It was regular old hybridization that created this thing. And now it's beginning to show up in the marketplace. Okay, what do we got? Okay, I got a question. I got a question that was one of a similar type of question that I get. So I kind of thought of the other versions that I've heard of this. It's about applying compost, and it's a time of year when people want to do this. And so the I've got this one in front of me. I'll go ahead and read this. The basic question is: How much should you apply to your vegetable garden? As if that there's some simple formula for that. Honest answer is there isn't a simple formula for it. But it was: Is there any rate of application for compost recommended? And it was kind of like, is it the number of pounds per acre or inches per square foot or is it? And then further questions in this conversation were whether it adds a lot of nitrogen. Does that amount to feeding your garden if you put compost on your garden? And uh, how quickly does that nitrogen in the compost get to the plant and so on? And uh, should you till it in and so forth? So those are kind of the general questions about how do you put compost into your vegetable garden? First of all, what is compost? Well, Let's first define it. What's that? Let's first define it. What what is and isn't compost? Yeah, compost is just any organic material that's been piled up and composted or decomposed. And so they bring it to a... You, you pile it up with some, you know, you'll see all these articles about the ratios of carbon to nitrogen and stuff, but it can be basically anything, anything from sawdust to uh, the, the byproducts of the mushroom industry, which is like stir manure and straw, things like that. It can be leaves from the fall. It can be lawn clippings. It can be food scraps. All those things can be piled up and brought to a high internal temperature by the natural process of decomposition. Steam will come off of a properly functioning compost pile. A soil thermometer or compost thermometer will tell you you're getting 165 to 170 degrees or warmer in that compost pile, which is warm enough to speed the breakdown of the stuff, the carbon materials that you put in there, helping to release what nutrients they do have, helping to make them smaller in particle size, and rather important, sort of naturally sterilize any weed seeds or pathogens that might be in there. No guarantee that it's complete sterilization, but a fully functioning compost pile properly maintained should not cause any disease organisms to spread into your garden. Uh, and compost has a lot of benefits and they're, they're, you know, I think it's oversold sometimes in terms of how much you might quote need end quote. Wherever you're listening, you might have had a soil test done. And anywhere here in the Davis woodland area, I can tell you your soil test will show very, very little organic material in your soil if it's natural native soil. Because we are in an area where there wouldn't be much putting organic material into the soil. We don't get enough rainfall. We don't have big deciduous trees as a natural forest here or conifers as a natural forest here. So over the millennia, what we got were very mineral soils with less than 1%, less than a half a percent, usually less than a quarter of a percent of organic material in there. Interestingly, those are great soils. 
you don't absolutely need compost in your soil to achieve any specific outcome. But it's frequently added for a couple of reasons. One is that it helps retain moisture by its very nature. It's ionically active, it holds water particles. And being ionically active, compost also holds nutrients. So if you do throw some fertilizer on your vegetable garden, rather than just watering right through and going through the minerals and out and past the root zone, the compost will thoughtfully hold on to it for you by its ionic charges and the ionic charges on the, uh, the minerals that matter, the nitrogen and things like that, and then will gradually release them to the plant at a rate that's kind of based on the decomposition of that compost or other factors. So it helps to mediate nutrient deficiencies, it helps to hold nutrients, and the main thing is it shades soil and it helps to retain moisture. The other really important thing it does, and one of the reasons row crop farmers will sometimes amend with compost, even at some expense, is if they can till it into the first couple of inches, it makes a much better seed bed by improving the soil structure just in that tilled zone. It improves this non-technical term, the soil tilth, or friability, the looseness of the soil, which enables seeds to germinate and sprout rapidly and root rapidly. So that is one reason, probably one of the most common reasons that people have tilled their garden every year, tilled in manure and compost. And well, we want you to get away from that tilling every year thing. That is one reason that people sometimes still do it, is to get a better seed bed. So those three things, nutrient retention, moisture retention, and improving the soil structure at a very shallow zone right at the surface are the main reasons. But if you just put it on top, as we've said many times, if you just top dress, term for spreading it out on the surface, and let it work its way in by the activity of soil bacteria and earthworms will rapidly come up because they think it's great stuff and they'll pull it back down and it'll just sort of decompose basically at the rate that your soil bacteria, your soil moisture and your soil temperature allow. You won't get too much in there or there won't be too little. It'll be at the rate that nature provides. You've just put it on the surface and it's incorporating itself much easier than rototilling it in. And if you do that year after year, you'll gradually make better soil structure, not only by growing plants and cutting them off and letting the roots decompose in the soil, but by putting compost on top of the soil. So that question, how much, was an interesting question. I went to an, an article, a PowerPoint presentation uh, about small farmers and people who are taking say 10 acre, 20 acre parcels adding compost as part of their whole management strategy. And I took all the range of compost application that they have, and they're using it to increase organic matter, increase soil microbial activity, enhance the availability of nitrogen, and increase micronutrients and cation exchange capacity, water holding capacity, all those different things we just talked about. And I figured out they're putting about, here's the bottom line, about a half inch on the surface each season. So that's the, that's the answer to the question that got that whole long soliloquy there. About a half inch on the surface at the start of each season, bearing in mind that in California, with gardening and vegetable gardening, we have two seasons. So you do that in the spring, half inch. Do that in the fall, half inch. So you don't need to go out and get gigantic volumes of it. You know, that's a, that's a, a couple of bags per hundred square feet. You're not talking about a huge volume of compost being necessary to improve your soil. You just keep adding it on the surface at about a half inch. No, it doesn't contain much nitrogen. Many commercial products, if you buy one from me, I have one that's 15% chicken manure. Manure is different than compost. That does provide some nitrogen, and chicken manure provides nitrogen quickly. Uh, surprisingly, most of its nitrogen is available the first season. From this PowerPoint presentation, 
the compost, it takes about, oh, 40, that's four zero, years to provide the nitrogen that's in it. So it's not a major source of, of fertilizer. It enhances the ability to use fertilizer. It enhances the function of the fertilizer. So you put it on and you, if it's got some chicken manure in it, great, that takes care of some of your nitrogen, or you might want to feed separately with any organic or conventional fertilizer, but you just, it's just a half inch, okay? You don't need to order a truckload of compost to make a difference. Combination of compost, cover crops, cutting rather than tilling, you improve the soil structure, and over time you'll find that soil improves its tilth, friability, and managing the water and nutrients is easier. Don, that was spectacular. That was a wonderful description. I, I now understand compost better than I have for the last 15 years that we've been doing this show. Well, people Thank like you, Don. Thank you. People like to make their own compost, and that's great. Uh, it's an easy thing to do. Personally, I stopped doing that years ago because I have so much volume of stuff, and it didn't make much difference in terms of how I did it. What I find is I get all these leaves. I have huge trees on this property. I just take them and spread them on the soil where I think the soil will benefit from it. And in a year where we have normal rainfall, they disintegrate within a, a winter season. You know, by spring, you gather there's the remaining little residue of those leaves. There's worms like crazy in there. There's all kinds of beneficial insects. In, in years past, I've taken a lot of those leaves and spread them out on the vegetable garden if I'm not planting an area in the winter. So I'm just composting on site. We have a dry winter. It doesn't happen. You take sycamore leaves out there and you only get, you know, a quarter of your normal rainfall while they're still out there. But <laughs> if you have areas where leaves are breaking down and there's soil moisture that interface of the leaves in the soil and you keep that consistent that way, just some moisture, as we've talked about before, certain really important beneficial insects like leatherwing beetles are breeding there and they eat your aphids. So just allowing the leaf matter to break down where it falls or in a chosen part of your yard, if you prefer a more tidy orderly appearance, that's a simple basic natural composting approach. Uh, if you're going out to buy something, because a lot of you just don't have room in your yards, just buy a few bags, spread it on the surface, and plan on feeding separately. So now that you've defined compost and its benefits, I want to also speak to the two other things that you might put in or on your soil. Fertilizer mm -hmm. is different than compost. And then mulch is something you put on the top to shade. Now, mulch, the bottom edges of the mulch where it's on the dirt, that actually does start to decompose a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, so compost could be mulch, but mulch is not necessarily compost. Yeah, very confusing terms. There's no standardization in our industry of what they mean. And in fact, one of, as an example, we sell a product called Fur Mulch. It was named for mulch 70 years ago by the company that sells it. It's compost. It's fur, bark, compost through 15% chicken manure. It's our most popular item for actually incorporating into garden beds uh, because it has that chicken manure in it. So it's a very popular vegetable planting uh, substance. Mulch just means something you put on the ground, put on top of the soil. And it can, rain, it can be gravel. It can be, uh, you know, I'm not my favorite, but that is a form of mulch. Bark is probably the most common mulch used for a couple of reasons. It has advantages and drawbacks. Bark, if it's true bark, you know, byproduct of the lumber industry, it actually contains products that are, make it hydrophobic. In other words, yes, that point of contact with the soil 
over time will eventually break down. And everyone's perhaps had the experience of putting fine bark down and having it disintegrate over several years to the point they have to refresh it periodically. The shredded products do it faster. The finer products do it faster, but it's much, much slower at incorporating into the soil naturally than a finely milled compost would be. And so bark is not something you want to incorporate into the soil. The reason being, if you incorporate it, it's there, it's tying up nitrogen as it breaks down and it breaks down very slowly. So it can, it's kind of like when you grind a tree stump and you want to plant a new tree in the same spot. It's very important to get away, take away as much of that ground sawdust shaving material as possible because as it breaks down, it's locking up nitrogen, making it unavailable to the new plant in that zone for a period of one to two years or more. And if you incorporate bark, you'll have the same situation. Plants will seem like they're not growing well. I've had people do this where they plant a tree where an old tree was and they didn't take out all that stuff that the, the stump grinder guy left behind. And they, the plants are okay, but they don't grow. They, the tree will just sit there barely growing. And at that point, you just, you know, the simple solution at that point, provide it some nitrogen directly uh, because the the remaining shavings are tying up the nitrogen. I think we've discussed this many times. You may have to supplement the fertilizer for that young tree. But mulch is just something on the surface. It's just something applied to the surface. Primary benefit of mulch is it's a surface you can walk on. That's one of the reasons people like bark. You can walk on it. It, it reduces compaction of the soil. It shades the soil. So in that sense, it does retain moisture but it doesn't incorporate itself into the soil and have the water retaining benefits that compost has by doing that. And it does not enrich the soil except over a very, very, very long time. So many people, I just went through this with someone who wanted to put compost down, but then that's gonna track on your shoes and your kids and your dogs. It's not a great walking surface. There's nothing wrong with putting a layer of bark on top of the compost or putting bark where the paths are where the traffic is gonna be because bark is a lot cleaner. Bark tends not to cling to your boots and your, your you know, pet fur and things like that. So it's a great surface for paths. Most people use it for paths. But if you're in a garden planted area, one of the best things you can do if you're gonna plant some flowers in April is go buy some bags of compost right now, spread them over that bed, half inch or so, and water them. Just water them to settle them down so the wind doesn't blow it away. And by the time you go to plant, some of that will have already incorporated and some of it will be there to just rake back, you know, pull back in around the individual plants as you put them in. So composting ahead of time, putting on compost ahead of time can make the soil better for something you're planting five, six, eight weeks down the road. So Don, I just love this email we got from Tred Hoffman. Let me tell the, the listeners about it. He writes, writing to Don, Based on your glowing reviews, I wanted to get some of that chef's choice orange tomato seed before your episode drops tomorrow and the price goes up. <laughs> uh, he, he's giving us a lot of credit for uh, being gonna, <laughs> influential. In we're going to rock the market. So we're going to rock the tomato yeah. seed market yeah. out there with the Davis Garden Show podcast. <laughs> Fred is doing a podcast called Garden Basics. You can find information about it at um, uh, farmerfred.com and you can find him online still on Facebook at Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Uh, he'll give you information about these Garden Basics podcasts. I was on his most recent one talking about which varieties of tomatoes, you know, just a quick overview, which varieties of tomatoes do you like? And I do have to mention, um, we'll, we'll definitely revisit this topic. The Chef's Choice series introduced by a seed firm up in Maxwell 
they're winning every new one practically is winning the all America selections awards, which do tell you something. Those awards tell you that it has been tested in a wide range of situations, wide range of gardening climates. So aside from the fact that this company is here in the Valley, so we can at least hope that their tomato varieties are suitable for the Valley. These are proving really good. I've touted the chef's choice orange because it was the first one that came on. I literally got 70 roughly one pound each fruit off of each of two vines of Chef's Choice Orange the first year that I grew it. And this is a firm enough tomato that you don't find yourself dealing with a lot of soft rotting tomatoes. You can pick them, you can take them to work and give them away. They slice beautifully, it cooks beautifully. They have a bunch of others. They have pink and red and white and green. They have a green one and, you know, these, and all these different colors. I have not had the chance to try any others except for the pink and the red, which also yielded very heavily. So, so far, the Chef's Choice series of tomatoes looks like a real winner. Hope the seed is still out there. <laughs> and Fred actually points up an interesting phenomenon this year. Um, there's going to be shortages of things just like there were last year. going to be that weird thing where you go into the garden center and you're looking for a clay pot and they don't have any clay pots because I'm getting about 60% of what I order in pottery right now. And that's been going on for eight months. Uh, so there are going to be some interesting spot shortages. But the good news is when it comes to plant materials, the wholesalers are jumping ahead of the game. They bought the seed you're having trouble finding. <laughs> so there should be plants <laughs> available at garden centers, at least early in the season. <laughs> okay. Um, Here's a good one. This is from Nick, who is down in West LA, and writes, uh, Hello, Don and Lois. Something has been eating my plants, and I'm not sure what it is. Mm -hmm. I have a backyard container garden in West LA. For the past month or so, something has been nibbling the tops of my plants. Sometimes it's been seedlings of edibles, like cauliflower or parsley, but more recently has just been some of my California natives. It's eaten my cucara down to the ground, and mm. the manzanita also. The weird thing about the manzanita is that the branches got chewed off in the middle, and then they were just left there, which you can see in, thankfully, the pictures he sent us. Any idea what this might be? Oh, wait a minute. The other thing is that I've had cucumber for years, and nothing has ever eaten it before. I've tried putting some floating row covers over my plants, which seemed to work, although something ripped through it the other night to eat a marigold. Any <laughs> idea what this might be? In the past, I've occasionally seen an opossum, and I have caught a rat. However, nothing has been eating foliage like this ever before. Thank you. No, that's definitely a mammal. I mean, when you first, the first questions that are coming in from people about things eating their plants um, over and over, it's been the white crown sparrow. We've been talking about that. You know, everybody has been having problems with the seedlings on that. But we're talking about this is, this is way bigger than something that a white crown, white yeah. crown sparrow could do. So you're definitely looking at some kind of furry critter. And that can be much more of a challenge. A floating row cover isn't really going to do it. Um, it's going to be, let's see, um, like a, an actual structure over the, over the garden. We posted a picture earlier, uh, which is still there at davisgardenshow.com, of what a customer did to deal with a white crown sparrow. So that's your starting point, is they took half-inch PVC and made hoops over the beds. You could do a simple version of this over individual plants if necessary. And they ran frost blanket over them. That's good enough for white crown sparrow. And that might even keep tree rats out because they just don't like to get tangled in stuff. But if you're dealing with a raccoon or really aggressive tree rat or 
something Poss- like that. Possums seem unlikely because they, you know, I've had possums on my property forever and I see them, they go around and they eat fruit that's fallen on the ground and they grub around at the seedlings a little bit. Skunks do that too. They don't attack a plant at the base like he's describing. They, what you get there is, is something that's uh, just much more um, um, aggressive. And although oh. looking, at, looking at the pictures, I suppose I could see how, tree rats would be doing the damage that he shows here. Um, main thing would be with, with rodents, with any vertebrate pest is what we call them, screening them out, unless you can figure out where they're coming from, unless you can figure out how to get rid of their habitat, their nesting sites, their food sources, uh, you're probably gonna have to screen individual plants until they change, you change the behavior pattern of the individual that you're dealing with. Very commonly, it's the same ones coming back through your yard because they found a food source over and over again. So you can search around for where tree squirrels, tree rats might be breeding, might be coming from, try to remove that habitat, but that's not necessarily your yard. That could be overgrown vegetation two doors over. So you don't really have control over all the possible habitats and nesting sites. So you end up going out and getting a pretty high grade um, poultry wire type material. It's going to be heavier duty than poultry wire and a finer mesh than poultry wire. It's not going to be chicken wire, but it's going to be something like that sold by the same kinds of places that sell chicken wire. So in our area, that would be a feed store. Uh, whether you have one of those nearby or a hardware store that happens to have a lot of wire mesh products. And you just start making simple little frames and stapling it onto them and setting them over plants that are getting injured until the, the damage stops in your yard because the thing is figured out there's no free lunch there and goes on to the neighbors instead. Make sure you're not putting out any food. You know, if you're the kind of person that likes to feed outdoor cats, that's not a great plan because that draws other wildlife as well. Uh, make sure you don't have food stored in places like dog food or something where they could get at it. And uh, anything that's in your garden that's a food source, such as fruit and stuff falling on the ground and staying there, uh, if you can get rid of that, that usually helps too. But generally, it's just physical barriers. I'm sorry to say, because that's kind of a hassle. But once you get the hang of it, once you've figured out, hey, I can take a tomato cage and wrap it with this wire mesh and just set that over the plant for the time being until the problem stops, then it becomes easier to do. You almost develop your own little custom modular plant protectors. And all they've got to do is have some fine mesh on them, fine, fine screening on them to keep the whatever this critter is out. And I would put my money on tree rats, or tree squirrels most likely, but it could be other things. I would put my money on turkeys. Well, you see them, they're in the daytime. Part of it is knowing- Well, well I know, but I'm looking, I'm looking at the damage here. Yeah. Each of those bites is one clean swipe, almost like scissors. There's, yeah. It's not mangled. I mean, if it was a possum, have you ever seen the dentation on a possum? Yes. They got very... these massive things, but they're like mangling. They're Just not like looking. Looking at the picture, it looks more like what I see when we've had a problem with tree rats and tree squirrels. Tree squirrels come into our nursery occasionally and we just run at them and, and scare them off. And they will mow off all the seedlings on one side of a flat of six packs very cleanly. They do it right in front of you. This is the thing. The, one of the things is if you happen to be home during the daytime, just keep an eye out as to what's going on. One of those uh, webcams can be really handy for watching where the damage is coming from. I had a customer send me a little video of something moving very rapidly through his front yard and he couldn't figure out what it was until I slowed it down and realized it was just a young raccoon, but it had been caught on his security camera. So he was able to 
to see what was coming in and possibly doing some damage very quickly and then moving right on through. So that might be a handy thing. But tree squirrels are there during the daytime, so they yeah, they don't care if you're there. They're completely unfazed by you. Uh, super soaker with a little bit of, uh, of soapy solution in it can, can at least make them irritable. Uh, tree rats, on the other hand, are always at night, and they come along the fence line, and so they'll go first to the things that are near the fence line, and they like overgrowth. They like things that are foliage that's crowding the fence uh, so that they can hide quickly. They want to move rapidly. They don't want to be exposed to the open sky. So sometimes people find that just a simple yard cleanup will reduce the problems with both squirrels to some degree, but especially tree rats or roof rats, because you're taking away their, their cover. And so that's the one thing you sometimes can do in your own yard when you're having a problem with this. And tree rats can do very localized damage very intensely, which is what it looks like on this, these heucheras. Uh, but a bigger mammal can just gnaw away at the base of something and do a lot of damage. I would guess you're probably dealing with tree rats. Sit out there in the evening at 11 p.m. with a drink and a flashlight and see what moves along the, fa the fence line. And if you would like to send us a message and ask your question, have us read that on the show. Don, what do they do? Well, they just email it to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. Or they tap me on the shoulder at the grocery store and they say, hey, what was that tomato you mentioned? <laughs> that doesn't work as well. <laughs> no, it's always better if you give it to us in writing. I don't know about Don, but my brain is just so stuffed with so many things right now that uh, it's much better to do it in writing. I also want to mention that someone sent a note that a particular show had not posted. And that was great because I realized I had done every step except the last one of making it available. So thank you, Kathy, for your note that the January 21 show was not there. And uh, I went back and said, oh, yeah, my mistake. I'll call that operator error. We do appreciate those notices. They're very helpful at times. We're, we're amateurs here. So <laughs> thank you. Where was it not posted? On our website or on the iTunes? It would have been a download. They probably It was probably on the website so or Google Podcast, she says. So oh, Okay. Very helpful. Yes. There's, there's another way. I'll mention this. There's another way to get the RSS feed for this show. If you just go to, to cater.org, um, you can click on the RSS feed there. And there it posts as soon as it plays. So you're not waiting for Don to get around to it. But most of you started out with davisgardenshow.com because that's how we did things 15 years ago. And so if you're on there, it's when I get to it. And I usually get to it pretty quickly, but not always. So thank you for the note. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore and Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. Community Radio relies entirely on donations from listeners like you to fund our ongoing operational costs. Your support keeps us on the air. Please consider contributing at whatever level you can. It's easy. Just visit kdrt.org, that's kdrt.org, and click the support button. You'll find a range of options, ways that you can help keep the programming you love broadcasting at 95.7 FM on your radio dial, live streaming all around the world on kdrt.org. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to kdrt.